The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I like double dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you know? <laughs> the PFTPM podcast, week 15 awards edition, Michael David Smith, Mike Florio, getting you through the best players, rookies, coaches, calls, or not necessarily the best calls, but the most noteworthy calls of the week that was. But before we get to that MDS, the Detroit Lions getting a head start on Black Sunday by letting us all know that there will be no changes made to head coach or general manager this year. Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn, respectively, will stay. But, but, and I quote from the article from Mike O'Hara of the Lions official website right off the top, Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia are being brought back for the 2020 season with a mandate for better results after two losing seasons. We want to be a playoff contender, Martha Firestone Ford said. That means playing meaningful games in December. And let me just say this before I get your reaction to the news. For once, an owner has admitted that that is the objective for every team. It's not winning the Super Bowl. Because if that's how you define success and failure, you are pissed off every year except for one team. And if you're the Patriots, you have failed more than two-thirds of the time over the last 20 years to fulfill your objective. It's not about winning the Super Bowl. It's about being relevant in December. If you are relevant in December, people come to your games, more people show up, they buy expensive stuff, the kids want jerseys of your best players, and also, most, most importantly, the folks who do show up for the game don't have signs that say sell the team. You want to be contending in December. It doesn't matter if you don't make it to the playoffs. It doesn't matter if you don't make it to the Super Bowl, although it's nice to get to the playoffs. You don't just want to be a contender every year and never make it. But the difference between good teams, bad teams, good teams contend every year for the playoffs, and that's what Martha Firestone Ford wants. It's silly to define success by winning the Super Bowl. It will drive you crazy if that's how you truly believe a successful team is determined. With that, I allow you documented Detroit Lions hater, well-documented and uh, well-known Detroit Lions hater. Give me your thoughts on the decision. Well, it's interesting that they want to be playing relevant games in December. I actually heard this week uh, from a a longtime Lions fan. I actually don't think he's a season ticket holder, but I believe he goes to multiple games every year and has been for many years. And he told me he got the sense that the stadium was about as empty as Ford Field has ever been for a Lions game. And they've been there, I think, 20 years now, um, this past Sunday against the Buccaneers. And particularly, he was saying it was a mob scene to leave at halftime among the fans who did show up. 
and there was a there was a rush not 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 for the restrooms, not for concessions, for the exits at halftime when they had fallen way behind the Buccaneers early. They actually made a game of it in the second half, but a lot of fans weren't there to see it. And it, I thought it was interesting that Martha Ford phrased it like that, that they at least don't want an empty stadium in December. They don't want fans leaving at halftime in December. They at least want to be playing meaningful games in December. So that I, I actually think that's a fairly low bar to set. But if your idea is we want our business to be successful that's where the bar is. It's not necessarily about winning the Super Bowl or even making the playoffs, but it's at least we're going to have eight home games. We want our fans to be there for those eight home games. We want them buying tickets. We want them buying concessions. We want them paying for parking, etc. So I think Martha Ford may have been a little taken aback by how empty that stadium was on Sunday, and that may be why the bar is set where it is. But it's clear that she still believes in Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia, and they will get a chance to do what they haven't done so far, and that is have a team that is playing good football into December. And I remember when William Clay Ford was alive and running the team, Bill Ford, his son, was the person who was believed to be groomed to take over upon the passing of William Clay Ford. And at some point, Bill Ford got nudged out altogether, and he's not coming back onto the scene. Sheila Ford Hamp, daughter of Martha Firestone Ford and the late William Clay Ford, seems to be the one who's in position. She's been involved more. She has been seen taking a more active role at games, talking to people like Matt Patricia before the game. She was part of this Meeting with a small handful of reporters today, she said the decision to bring Quinn and Patricia back was not an easy one to make. And look, that that really does put these guys on notice for next year. I mean, as we begin to think about hot seat 2020, Quinn, Patricia at the top without question. Yeah. Forget about what their contracts say. Forget about what any other team is going to do. The mandate is there. The hot seat is hot. And it's Quinn and Patricia. And there's another line from this column that there had been rampant speculation in recent weeks about Patricia's job security and also Quinn's to a lesser extent. You can't fire Patricia and keep Quinn. You have to let both guys go because Patricia was Quinn's guy. And Quinn got the chance to, number one, keep Jim Caldwell. That was his call coming through the door. And after two seasons, he moved on from him. And then number two, it was his call to bring in Patricia. I've never viewed it as Patricia only, and then Quinn gets to hire someone else. That's it. If they're making the change, they're all gone and they're starting over because the cultural change that Matt Patricia is trying to make is also the same change Bob Quinn is trying to make. So if you don't believe in Patricia, you necessarily don't believe in Quinn. They are tied together. This isn't a situation where it was a forced marriage and the GM, oh boy, if we only could get rid of the coach, we'd be successful. No, this is the guy the GM wanted. So if it's bad enough for him to be fired, then Quinn should be fired too. And that's actually the right way to run an organization. I don't like the idea of the coach and the GM being on different standards of accountability and different tracks. They either both stay or they both go. And after 2021 or 2020, excuse me, or during 2020, both stay or both go. That's the way it has to be. Yeah. And I think if one year from now, the lions are six and eight or worse, I, I think Patricia and Quinn are gone. If one year from now, they're, 
10 and 4 or better, I think Quinn and Patricia are both getting contract extensions. And, it, you know, if there's somewhere between that 6 and 8 and 10 and 4 it, with two games to go, then they're probably working for their jobs with two games to go. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I think that's the kind of team that, they, that they're expecting to have, that they're going to be closer to 10 and 4 a year from now than 6 and 8 a year from now. And I think then it, be, it also becomes interesting, does Bob Quinn pull the kind of move like trade his next two first-round picks for a big impact player because he's thinking, hey, I know I'm not going to get to make the 2021 first-round pick if we don't win this year. So, I, you know, if I trade away the 2021 pick and we stink, that's someone else's problem. Uh, I, I want to, if I can use the 2021 pick to make us better right now, I'll do it. So I think the Lions immediately become one of the first teams we look at of if if there's a, a high-profile franchise guy, not at quarterback, I think they're, they're committed to Stafford, but at basically any other position on the team, if there's a high-profile guy that's out there that you can have him, if you're willing to give up a lot in draft picks, I think the Lions instantly become one of the first teams we look to because the guys running the team know we have to turn it around this year. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. And you need to have voices in the organization that are in position to push back against that kind of a move when it is obviously a desperation-type effort by the current regime to secure their future. They don't care about mortgaging the team's interest beyond 2020 because they may not be there. And let me just say this. I like the fact that the Lions are keeping Patricia and Quinn because I think when you've got six decades of dysfunction and underachievement, I don't think that you should give a massive effort to change the culture just a couple of years. And I think, and look, some of it was self-inflicted, but I think that Matt Patricia has faced extensive resentment and resistance to his effort to change things. Quinn also as part of that, but Patricia's been the guy on the front lines. They're trying to make things different. They're trying to make it like the Patriots. Patricia's attitude is, I don't want to be nine and seven once every two or three years. I want to be... 10 wins or more every year, and he's trying to put that in place, and it's not easy to do. I don't like the fact, though, that there is an obvious fuse on Quinn and Patricia for next year. That makes for a major distraction. And what it also may do, it may make it harder to attract that free agent that has choices because the free agent that has choices knows, hmm, there's a chance after one year with the Lions, there's going to be a new boss. There's going to be a new GM. There may not be a place for me here. I better get more money. I better have more guarantees that trickle into 2021 and beyond because I could be out the door after one year and have to go somewhere else. I really don't want that kind of uncertainty. I really don't want to go through this all over again. It could be a factor. It could force them to pay a little bit more to get guys that other teams want if they decide to be active in free agency. Yeah, and, you know, Mike Daniels was a guy who actually said that he had better offers and he thought Matt Patricia was going to be the perfect coach for him. And he he said he took less to go to the Lions after the Packers cut him. Um, it will, it'll be interesting to see, though, is it harder now for Patricia to be a guy who gives a sales pitch to a free agent of, hey, I, I'm the coach for you. I've got a plan for you on this team. If the players are thinking and if player agents are – hearing around the league, 
Patricia may not be there long. You know, they could Patricia could be a guy who, if they get off to a slow start, he could get fired midseason next year. So it, it it becomes harder, I think, when everyone knows you're coaching for your job. That makes your job more difficult. But that's that's the business of the NFL. Well, you're right, but but again, the idea that they 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 didn't have to to apply that that caveat to keeping the guys. All they have to do is say they're back next year. Period. And we'll worry about next year when next year happens. I think that that placing that extra pressure on them is not going to be good for business. It's not going to be good for bu- building the kind of team they want to build in the offseason. And when I'm looking ahead to their schedule next year to the teams they're expected to play, you know, how the schedule gets configured, whether they can get off to a good start, whether their difficult games come early in the year or late in the year will be factors in getting the team in the position it needs to be to avoid Matt Patricia being let go early. And next year they've got the AFC South tour with the Titans, the Texans, the Jaguars, and the Colts. And it looks like they also have the NFC South tour with the Saints, Buccaneers, the Falcons, and the Panthers. So who knows how difficult or not that will be. But the NFC North, a very good division. The Bears could be better next year. The Packers, 11-3 and so far this year. The Vikings, a very good team. It's not going to be easy for the Lions to compete and contend next year right away with all the other uh, quality teams that they're going to be dealing with just in their own backyard. Last point before we move on. I never could really get a sense of how they truly feel about Matthew Stafford. And by they, I mean Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia. He's been around for 11 years. One of my arguments has been he had never really been coached the way that maybe he needed to be coached to embrace being a franchise quarterback, being a leader, and everything that goes along with it. And I still think that's a work in progress. But I think if the objective next year is just win, 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 you're not going to try to break in a new quarterback. Stafford's got to be back next year to get the most out of what the team is going to have. He's still your best player. And instead of going into year one with someone else, year three with Matthew Stafford is going to make more sense. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I think Stafford will be back. I, I think they're committed to him. I think also his contract, the way it's structured, uh, it, moving him would be a little difficult. It wouldn't be impossible if they really wanted to, but I think it would be difficult. Uh, and, and I actually think they've been conservative with his injury this year. I mean, you know, he's... He's now missed almost half the season, and he was saying at the time, I, you know, I, I wouldn't mind playing through this injury if they'd let me. Now they, they haven't officially shut him down. He's not on injured reserve, but it certainly looks like he's not going to play. I, I think that might also be an indication that, hey, we want Stafford to be 100% for the offseason program. Who knows what new assistant coaches are going to be in, but if they make any changes to the offense – we want Stafford working in that. We want Stafford working with any wide receivers we bring in. And I, I think they're really going to win or lose with Stafford as their quarterback next year. He's due to make $21 million next year, plus a $500,000 workout bonus. That's downright cheap as NFL starting quarterbacks go. 
Cap charge is $31.5 million in 2020. Dead cap would be $26 million if they would move on. And, of course, they could spread that out over a couple of years if they wanted to. Still a lot of money to carry either way for the Lions and Matthew Stafford. And I think they hang on to him. I think that even though they've got that Patriot DNA, you can scratch off any talk as if there was any of Tom Brady going back to the state where he played college football and finishing up his NFL career. That ain't happening. It's all in with Matthew Stafford. No other quarterback is going to be on the radar screen. It would be a stunner if they tried to pull that off. So I think we've exhausted the Lions news, but remove Matt Patricia from the list of candidates to get whacked on Black Sunday or actually... Yeah, it is Black Sunday now, not Black Monday, because we know most of the firings by the time we go to bed on the evening that the 17th weekend of the regular season concludes. So no Matt Patricia, no Bob Quinn, but uh, there will be others. What we're going to do now, what we do every Tuesday, except when we have to do it Wednesdays for uh, technical reasons, it is time for the awards for Week 15. We're going to start with Player of the Week, MDS. You have the honors. Well, I'm going to go with Kenyon Drake, who had four touchdowns for the Cardinals on Sunday in their win over the Browns. And, you know, I I thought it was really interesting to watch him on Sunday. He was getting pretty animated. And I realized during the game, he hadn't won a game this year. He was with the Dolphins when they started, I think, 0-6 at the time they traded him to the Cardinals. And then the Cardinals were on a long losing streak after he got traded there. So he had not won a game this season. I'm not sure, but he may be the only player in the NFL who has been active all season and hasn't been on a winning team yet. Uh, And he looked pretty fired up. He played very well. Uh, I I, I still think that was a little bit of a weird trade. I, I, I didn't think the Cardinals were a team that should have been buyers near the trade Deadline. I, I thought it was no surprise the Dolphins were sellers, but it was surprising the Cardinals were buyers. But he played very well. He looks like he's a good fit in Cliff Kingsbury's offense. If he has a future in Arizona, I think he could continue having big games like the one he had on Sunday. You know, the problem is they're stuck with David Johnson for at least one more year, given the way that that contract was structured and we see the rolling guarantees in a lot of contracts where in March of the next year March of 2020 for example there is a decision made to either keep or get rid of a guy and if you keep him his salary for that year vests the way that David Johnson's contract was structured that bridge for 2020 was crossed in 2019 that's the smart way to do it that ensures that the player is going to get his money ensures that the team is really going to have no choice but to keep him now the Cardinals could always move on from David Johnson and just pay the guaranteed money minus whatever offset they pick up by virtue of whoever else would sign him but I think if David Johnson was available right now he'd get peanuts in comparison to what the Cardinals would do to pay him so that becomes a factor in showcasing Drake And driving up his value, it makes it harder to keep Drake because you've already got money allocated to David Johnson, who has gone basically missing in the Cardinals offense, the not just balance of the season, but all season long. He's not anything close to what he was when uh, past regimes were there in Arizona. So it's almost like by getting the most out of Kenyon Drake, the, the Cardinals are making it harder to keep Kenyon Drake because they already have that money budgeted, whether they like it or not, for David Johnson. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I don't know 
how Cliff Kingsbury would have felt about David Johnson if he hadn't inherited him. Um, but I, I suspect Cliff Kingsbury thinks of Kenyon Drake more as the kind of running back he wants in his offense than David Johnson. So that's an interesting dynamic for the Cardinals going forward about these two running backs. I think Drake may be the guy who's a better fit for what Kingsbury wants to do. And to the extent that there is merit to the story from NFL media that after Sunday's game between the Cardinals and the Browns, multiple Browns players were yelling, the Cardinals players, come get me. You wonder what kind of a destination Arizona becomes with Kyler Murray at quarterback and with Cliff Kingsbury there as the head coach. They have a lot to do to become contenders in the NFC West, given the presence of the Seahawks, the Rams, and the 49ers. But I'm fascinated by the question of how much GM Steve Keim can do in one offseason to turn the roster into something that gets the most out of Kyler Murray. Because I have been a believer for a while now, fast-forwarding to next year. We look at the trend over the past few seasons. 2017, Deshaun Watson took the NFL by storm. 2018, it was Patrick Mahomes. 2019, it's Lamar Jackson. I feel like it could be Kyler Murray next year, but he's going to need help around him because if he's just a stat machine but he's not winning games, nobody's going to care. Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely right. And, you know, Steve Keim, uh, I think this is a pretty important offseason for him. I, I think the Cardinals need to be better for his job to be safe. I think with Cliff Kingsbury, I don't see him as a person – who's really on the hot seat because I think there was an expectation that it might take a little time for him to get his system into place. Steve Kime's been there a while now. And if, if Steve Kime hasn't given Cliff Kingsbury the players he can win with, I don't know how much longer he'll be around. Well, and here's the other side of it too. I mean, we went into the season thinking that Steve Kime was in serious trouble by virtue of the team not being very good and his off field exploits, which are well-documented. Sometimes a head coach does enough in his first year that he acquires influence, and it wouldn't stun me if Kime is out after one year and Kingsbury then participates in bringing in a GM who wouldn't work for Kingsbury as much as work with Kingsbury, somebody Kingsbury knows and is comfortable with who would help him get the players he thinks he needs to get the most out of that offense. But you're building it all around Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury coaching Kyler Murray You almost have to defer to what the guy wants. Let this experiment play out the rest of the way. And if there's any misgiving on Kingsbury's part about whether or not Kime's going to give him what he wants, that's when you start thinking about the possibility of somebody else being the one to buy the groceries while Kingsbury is the one who cooks the meals. All right, my player of the week, and this one's an easy one. The performance on Monday night from Drew Brees, first battle Hall of Famer, top five all time in my book, He's got all the good records. He's going to retire possibly with every great record except, you know, the passing record that Brett Favre will probably never give up for interceptions in a career. But getting past Peyton Manning for career touchdown passes, doing it on the night that they were celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Super Bowl victory over Peyton Manning's Colts with all those former players in town and Breeze, the guy who led that team, still going strong at age 40. He'll be 41 on January 15. And also the way he did it, completing 29 of 30 passes, setting a single-game completion percentage record, moving the way he did. You know, it occurred to me last night when I saw him sidestep a blitzing defensive back or linebacker, whoever it was, somebody was in his face and he, he darted around and made the throw. I think he's better than Tom Brady right now. He's playing better than Tom Brady right now. 
And between Tom Brady and Drew Brees, and I put the question out on Twitter today, and it's been a landslide so far. People would rather have Drew Brees than Tom Brady. I don't know that I'd go that far. But as of right now, in that offense, with that help around him, and I think Tom Brady would be performing a lot better with Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara and Jared Cook and Sean Payton, most importantly, Sean Payton, drawing up the plays. It just felt like, like Drew Brees turned the clock back last night three or four years. And if it's something that is permanent, like if he's found some new groove and if it's going to stay that way, I hope he keeps going. I had thought that this may be it for him. But if I'm the Saints, I want to keep him around. And if I'm Drew Brees, I want to stick around. And I think whoever plays deeper into the future, 2020, 2021, 2022, who's ever last standing between Tom Brady and Drew Brees, that's the guy who's going to end up with that all-time passing touchdown record. I don't know that it's going to fluctuate because I think Brady is going to be behind Brees moving forward because I don't see Brady having the help to generate enough to avoid that gap from growing. But I also think that at the end of any given year, the gap won't be so big that if Brady plays that one extra year, he won't overcome it. But regardless of that, Breeze the player of the week, Breeze an incredible performance, and now the question becomes, can the Saints avoid a third straight season of postseason heartbreak? They surely have forgotten about 2017 and 2018, but to some extent you can never forget about it. And for the guys who were there and part of those teams, you just can't help but wonder if you get into a close game in the postseason – are you going to be thinking about that in the back of your head? Here we go again. And does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy? I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's where the Saints are headed at 11-3. and three, I think of all the teams in the NFC right now, they're in the best position to finish with the number one seed. Somebody's going to get the number one seed between Green Bay, New Orleans, Seattle, and San Francisco. I think it's going to be the Saints. And what we saw last night from Drew Brees, if he keeps playing like that, they're going to be very, very difficult to beat in January. And, you know, last year around this time, I was thinking that Drew Brees was looking like he had lost a little something on his fastball. I thought some of his passes didn't look as sharp. I thought it looked like an older quarterback. Maybe his shoulder's getting tired. Maybe his elbow's getting tired. This year, I don't see that. And I can't help but wonder if those five games he missed with the thumb injury weren't actually a good thing for the Saints. Because first of all, they didn't lose any of those games. Teddy Bridgewater did a good job, and the rest of the team stepped up. They won every game he missed. And I don't see the same kind of – he just doesn't look fatigued late in the season the way I thought he did late last season. Now, look, the Saints were a bad call away from the Super Bowl last season, so it's not like they fell apart. But it just – it looked late in the year like Drew Brees had lost a little something on some of his passes – to a lesser extent than I see now. And I just can't help but think, you know, it, I, I don't know if any quarterback would ever admit it was a good thing that I had to miss five games, but I actually think he might be a little better off right now than he would have been if he had played every game because being forced to the sideline because of his, because of his thumb also meant rest for his shoulder and his elbow and his legs and all those body parts that get beaten up over the course of a long season, he may be more fresh than he would have been. I think that's a really good point. And I also think he has acknowledged that there are lines within which he has to stay now, given his age, and that there are certain things that he just can't do anymore, like throw the ball 60 yards down the field. So you just don't try to do it. 
Don't do the things you can't do. And that was the lesson learned, the first snap of the divisional round game against the Eagles, where they had it drawn up for two weeks. We're going to go deep to Ted Ginn, and everything worked out just perfectly, except for the fact that Drew Brees wasn't able to get the ball to Ted Ginn. So you don't see a lot of those rainbows in the air anymore from Drew Brees. He stays within what he can do. I think Sean Payton drawing up a lot of plays that helped Drew Brees get the most out of his ability. But still, the way he moved last night, the zip he had on the ball, the accuracy that we saw, you know, he he threw a lot of balls that were right there. And uh, so many that the the one that stands out that was an overthrow was that great Michael Thomas one-handed catch. The rest of the balls were right where they needed to be. So he was spectacular last night. Player of the week for me. And again, if he keeps doing that, and you may be on to it, the five weeks off that he got from playing may be the difference between a guy who runs out of steam in January and a guy who's hitting his stride. That may be bad news for everybody in the NFL. And I think that reinforces that Sean Payton has done the best coaching of his career by winning those five games without Drew Brees. They may be in better position now to win the Super Bowl than they were if Brees hadn't been injured. All right, rookie of the week time for Week 15. MDS, who do you have? I'm going with Cowboys running back Tony Pollard, who had more than 100 yards on Sunday as the Cowboys beat the Rams convincingly. And, you know, as I was watching it, I was thinking back a little bit to the preseason when Pollard had a big game and Ezekiel Elliott was holding out. And Jerry Jones said, Zeke who? And then he kind of laughed. And, you know, there was some talk of, was he just kidding or was he sending Zeke a message or... Was he was he going to play hardball with Zeke because Pollard was playing so well in the preseason? And, you know, watching Pollard play, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of Jerry Jones that's wondering, did I do, devote too much money to Zeke and not save enough for Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper this coming off season? Because Tony Pollard looks like he's able to do most of the things that Ezekiel Elliott does And I don't think you can find a rookie quarterback or a rookie wide receiver who can do most of the things that Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper did. And I I just wonder if Jerry Jones isn't looking at Tony Pollard and thinking to himself, maybe I should have played a little harder ball with Ezekiel Elliott because if he had held out well into the season, Tony Pollard would have done a good job. Zeke would have reported eventually, even if I hadn't given him a new contract at all, And I'd have a lot more salary cap space left for Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper. So there's only so much of a point of discussing it now because they already signed Zeke. No going back on it. But I really think Tony Pollard can do what the Cowboys need from a running back in their offense. And I, I just thought he was great on Sunday. One of the reasons that I believed very heavily in the notion that Ezekiel Elliott should take a stand and hold out is that if he didn't hold out now and he deferred his contract discussions until after this season, number one, there's a chance he could be banged up and injured and not the guy that he used to be, a.k.a. Todd Gurley. But also, there's a chance, I believe, that the offense would evolve sufficiently that Ezekiel Elliott would no longer be, as Stephen Jones described him in May on PFTPM, the straw that stirs our drink. And the straw may then be Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper. And running back is suddenly not as important to us as it once was. And then we just don't value the position like we did. And oh, by the way, we've seen what we have in Tony Pollard. We're even less inclined to pay you big money. So I think it was wise for Zeke to do what he did. Not necessarily good for the Cowboys to have paid him that big money. 
but wise for Ezekiel Elliott to draw the line in the sand when he did because there's still that all-in mentality in Dallas every year. Every year is the year that they're trying to win it all, and they balance that against building and saving and planning for the future. They are going to have a problem next year because Ezekiel Elliott hasn't been the guy he was the first three seasons of his career. And you're right. If Tony Pollard can come out and average the kind of yardage he did, I mean, he had fewer carries, significantly fewer than Zeke Elliott and more yards than Elliott in week 15, then they may be saying, wow, we we maybe uh, jumped the gun on paying Ezekiel Elliott, but Ezekiel Elliott should feel good about cashing in for what he did his first three seasons, even if it hamstrings the Cowboys moving forward. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the Cowboys, it's funny that we're still talking about them along these lines and there's only two more weeks to go in the regular season because this could go a number of different ways. They could lose to the Eagles on Sunday and then the next week would likely get knocked out of the playoffs. And and then we're going to look at this season as a massive failure and Jason Garrett will certainly be fired and other changes will certainly be coming but they still have it right in front of them to to turn this around, as Jerry Jones has said, like a fairy tale. Because if they win on Sunday against the Eagles, they will have a, a week when they could rest anyone that needs rest. Then they'll have a home playoff game, likely against the winner of a very hard-fought Seahawks 49ers game. You could have a well-rested Cowboys team playing at home against a, a, a visiting team that's coming off one probably what looks like it'll probably be the toughest, most physical game in the NFL in Week 17. Cowboys could win that game, and then you know they they pull an upset on the road in the divisional round. Who knows what happens? But it it the the Cowboys there is a greater range of endings to this year, I think, for the Cowboys than for any other team because it, it could all be it could all end in total disaster, starting with a loss to the Eagles on Sunday. Or it could be the the fairy tale that Jerry Jones is asking for, and, and it's all right in front of them. It's going to be fun to watch what happens. But you're right, and it occurred to me when the Giants were up 17-3 over the Eagles last Monday night that one of these teams in the NFC East is going to make it to the playoffs, host a playoff game, and probably beat a banged-up fifth seed coming out of that Week 17 showdown. And it's more likely to be the Cowboys who are able to win because – They can rest starters week 17 if they win on Sunday at Philly. They will have clinched the division. If Philly wins, they still have to finish the job the following weekend against the Giants or else watch Washington beat Dallas to win that division. So going into the week the Eagles and going into the game, the Eagles are going to have to go for it and ultimately may have to win that game. It may be a hard-fought game against the Giants in New York. So if the Cowboys win Sunday – rest their starters, a banged-up 49ers or Seahawks team comes into town, the Cowboys beat them, that could give them that little kick in the ass that they need to have the confidence that they can go to Seattle or Green Bay or New Orleans and win. And, you know, we've seen a couple of hard-fought games between the Saints and the Cowboys the last couple of years, low-scoring, defensive-type games. The Cowboys won last year, the Saints won this year. And that would, that's one of those, you know, as we're looking for rematches in the playoffs that should be intriguing to us. I know how badly the Saints wanted to face the Cowboys last year after what the Cowboys did to them the week after Thanksgiving in the regular season. This year, if I'm the Cowboys, I'd really love a chance to go back to New Orleans and play a game, single elimination, season on the line after having just beaten the 49ers. That may be what the Cowboys are dreaming for. Yeah, I, I think that may be right. And uh, 
I think the Cowboys might go into the playoffs with a little more confidence than most on the outside have in them. I, I think the Cowboys, if they beat the Eagles on Sunday, I think they're going to be going into the postseason feeling like, hey, we've got a real chance to do this. I, I think that they would then rest some of their key players in Week 17. They, they'd have a, a home game that even if it's against a better team, I think it's a home game they absolutely could win. And then I think they'd be a pretty confident team going forward. And uh, it's just, it, it's funny how much can hinge on getting that home playoff game. And especially if, if it's coming off a week of rest, as opposed to uh, having to go on the road in the first week of the playoffs. And that's the format that the NFL playoffs are. And the Cowboys are really going to benefit from it if they take care of business against Philadelphia. All right, my rookie of the week, and I am calling an audible over what I had sent you beforehand, and I apologize for that. I'm going with receiver A.J. Brown of the Tennessee Titans, and there was a point earlier this year when his statistics were virtually identical to D.K. Metcalf, and obviously both guys came from Mississippi. A.J. Brown was drafted before D.K. Metcalf, and there's been a sense that has emerged in recent weeks, that without question, DK Metcalf is the best rookie receiver of the 2019 class. You haven't been paying attention to A.J. Brown, if you believe that, because over the last few weeks, A.J. Brown has separated from DK Metcalf. He has, in the last three games, 100-yard performances, or three of the last four games. He's got 135 against Jacksonville, 45 yards against Indy in a 31-17 win, 153 yards and two touchdowns against the Raiders last week. And then this week, even though they lost 114 yards on eight catches and a touchdown, for the season, 47 receptions, 893, and seven scores. DK Metcalf has 52, only 819 yards and six scores. So for now, and definitely more recently, A.J. Brown is outperforming D.K. Metcalf, and he's become the go-to guy for Ryan Tannehill in that Tennessee Titans offense. And to the extent the Titans are going to turn this around and get to the playoffs, and they still have a chance to do it, the Steelers losing on Sunday night really helped their chances. They can get in still by winning the division. They can get in by a wild card, depending upon what the Steelers do and depending upon what they do. But A.J. AJ Brown, a key part of that offense and something for the Titans to build around as they try to develop an identity in the passing game. Brown has been great. And there, there are times where it's just like he's a man among boys. He just goes and gets the ball, and whoever's covering him, no, no chance of even getting close to him. And it seems like he's always open, uh, and uh, he's always producing. So A.J. Brown of the Tennessee Titans, a team that I thought would beat the Texans and I thought would be in position to win the division, now kind of getting close to life support, but I, I'm not going to give up on the Titans because every time you write them off, that's when they turn it back around and end up playing great. And if they do pull it off this season, it's going to be because in large part of A.J. Brown. Yeah, and, you know, A.J. Brown actually had a couple of big games with Marcus Mariota as well. He had 100 yards in the very first game of the year when they blew out the Browns. He had 94 yards and two touchdowns when they beat the Falcons. So the two games the Titans won when Marcus Mariota was the starter A.J. Brown played very well in. Uh, Marcus Mariota was not finding him very often in the other four games, and that's part of why he got benched for Ryan Tannehill. But he's been a really impressive presence in that Titans offense 
this season, and he's one of the reasons the Titans are still in playoff contention. Certainly that loss to the Texans uh, damaged their chances of getting to the playoffs. They're now going to need some help, but uh, they, they, they've played better than I think most people were expecting, and I think obviously Tannehill is the most important reason, but A.J. Brown a very important part of it as well. Yeah, and and I really I, I really like the idea of the Titans making the playoffs because I feel like they can be disruptors in the AFC. I, I all due respect to the Texans, I saw what they did against the Ravens, and I know they've beaten the Chiefs, and I know they've beaten the Patriots, and I know that they can pull it together and win a big game. I, I just I think that the Titans have a better chance to shake things up in the AFC than the Texans. I think we're so conditioned to be ready for that early window wild card weekend. Texans hosting a game and an uninspiring performance like last year when they lost at home to the Indianapolis Colts. All right, Coach of the Week time, MDS, who do you have? I am going to go with Tampa Bay coach Bruce Arians, who I think is building the kind of offense that he has been wanting to build. I think it has taken a little bit of time to get that offense straightened out, but the thing that I really liked this week in their win over the Lions Mike Evans was injured, didn't play in the game. Chris Godwin got hurt during the game. Scotty Miller got hurt during the game. It ended up that every single eligible receiver who suited up for the Buccaneers, every wide receiver, every running back, every tight end, caught at least one pass. So Bruce Arians, he's just spreading them all over the place. And and I think that's the kind of offense that Bruce Arians wants to have. I think he wants Jameis Winston not to just rely on Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, but really to spread the ball all over the field. And I think he's quite pleased that they're showing that they can play well on offense, even with those two very good receivers, Evans and Godwin, injured. So I liked what the offense did. Jameis Winston had one of his better games, but I thought really it was Bruce Arians who deserved the bulk of the credit for the way that offense is playing. Yeah, and and look, the the – the Buccaneers have played well enough down the stretch that I think it's all going to be back next year. Arians back as coach, Jameis Winston back as quarterback. And I also think that, that they're not going to have to worry about any of the key assistants being poached to be head coaches. It's not like the Buccaneers had such a great year that Byron Leftwich is going to end up leaving to be someone else's head coach. Eventually that could happen. But for 2020, I think everything's still going to be in place for the Bucs. They're going to reset at 0-0, zero and zero, and maybe next year is the year that they make it all happen. And they've got to keep Jameis Winston, MDS. When I saw that he was the first quarterback ever, at least in the regular season, to have 450 or more passing yards in back-to-back games, I thought it was wrong. I thought it was incorrect. I thought it was fake news. It's the truth. And... You know, you have to deal with the bad with Jameis Winston, but I'll hey, I'll take an interception on the opening drive of the game if I'm getting four fifty-eight and four touchdowns the rest of the way, like he did on Sunday in Detroit. Yeah, and it's been funny how it's like Winston just has to get that first one out of the way. It's part of his. Uh, some guys have a pregame routine they go through. Winston has an early in the game interception to throw. But uh, he got his one out of the way and then played extremely well. And, you know, the Buccaneers, they have not been a great team this season, but they look to me like the kind of team you expect to take a second year under Bruce Arians' jump. I think there are a lot of reasons to be confident in them going forward. 
I think that NFC South division is going to be real interesting next year. We'll have a new coach in Carolina. It'll be real interesting to see how well New Orleans is able to keep it together. I think the Falcons, you know, we, we know they have talented players. It's going to be tough for the Falcons to, to keep it going uh, around their expensive core of players because they don't have much cap space left to, to build a team around them. So to, to me, the Falcons are poised to take a step back maybe, but it's an interesting division to me, the NFC South. And I think the Buccaneers could be the team that knocks off the Saints next year. And I'm going to stay in the NFC South for my coach of the year. And I'm going with a coach of the week, not coach of the year, coach of the week, because the coach of the week may be fired at the end of the year. Still Dan Quinn of the Atlanta Falcons, his ability to get his team, which was playing for nothing and really, which has been playing for nothing since the bye week, although they were still technically alive when they won two in a row, including thumping the saints in their own building right out of the gates after the bye to go to Santa Clara beat the 49ers the way they did last play of the game. Guys were locked in. I I thought it was impressive. It shows that these players want to play for Dan Quinn, and it shows that when you have a roster that really can't be dramatically changed because of the cap consequences, and you have to rely upon your star players to perform because you don't have the cap flexibility next year to bring in a lot of help, maybe you should stick with the guy that has been the coach uh, that that Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, and the rest of the nucleus of that team has been working with for the past several years. Maybe that's your best hope for 2020. So I think Dan Quinn put together a very compelling closing argument, even with two games left, to become the coach of the Falcons in 2020. And I think Arthur Blank needs to ask himself, if I do get rid of Dan Quinn, am I really going to improve next year with someone else? How quickly will it turn around And if there's a coach out there that has alternatives, is that coach going to want to go to a place where there's a better opportunity to put the the players in place that that player would like to have? Because, look, every coach wants his own quarterback. And I don't think Matt Ryan is the kind of no-brainer franchise quarterback that every coach is going to say, oh, absolutely, I want Matt Ryan. Not like Peyton Manning when Tony Dungy took over in Indy in 2002. I think there's going to be at least some question there depending upon who you hire. So why not just keep the guy you have and do it again? And when you consider that they beat the 49ers in their own building and they beat the Saints in their own building, that, number one, shows me how impressive the Falcons can be if they can do it more frequently. And number two... It, it really makes me feel even more strongly that home field advantage is not going to be all that meaningful in the NFC this year. We've seen the Saints win in Seattle, Seattle win in San Francisco, San Francisco win in New Orleans. We've seen the Falcons do what they did both on the road against the Saints and the 49ers. And it makes me think that when we get to the divisional round specifically, it may not be that presumption, the one and the two seed advance. I think the rest is going to help them, but the home field advantage may not. So it's going to make the NFC playoffs even more compelling. And maybe Quinn, if given another year, can get the Falcons back into that mix in 2020. Yeah, and you know, this is the second year in a row that the Falcons have done this. They were four and nine last year and then ended up seven and nine, winning their last three. This year they were three and nine. Now they're up to five and nine. We'll see if they can get to seven and nine again. Uh, it's a tribute to Dan Quinn that his players don't quit on him, that that they keep playing hard down to the last week of the season, even though they're out of the playoff race. I don't know that it speaks very well to their ability to build a team for the future, that they keep 
moving themselves up in the draft order at a time when they are in desperate need of an infusion of young talent because they've got aging, expensive talent as the current core of their team. So in some ways, it's almost like Dan Quinn is coaching too well for his own good uh, in December of losing seasons. But but I, I appreciate that they're doing it. I, I like the teams, the players, the coaches who keep going hard even after they're out of it. And so I admire that the Falcons are doing that. And they certainly uh, really played very well against the 49ers. They went on the road and beat one of the best teams in the NFL. I think that is a tribute to Dan Quinn. Yeah, and uh, we'll see what Arthur Blank does. The clock is ticking, though, and it could be Dan Quinn among the guys who find out when the last game of the regular season ends that so too does his time with the team expire. All right, call of the week time on this week 15 edition of the Tuesday PFTPM podcast. What's your call of the week? Well, I'm going with uh, Dak Prescott making a weird call before the game even started. Cowboys won the pregame coin toss, and Dak Prescott said, kick, defense, we defer to the second half. And the referee, Walt Anderson, said, uh, you got, you said kick, you guys are kicking. And then at halftime, uh, it was reviewed with the, the league's officiating office and Al Riveron, and it was determined that Dak Prescott was allowed to say defer. Uh, and, and I think that was the right thing to do because I think it was clear that's what Dak Prescott was trying to say. I think that he should know better than to first say kick, but it was clear what he meant. But I think the league officiating office needs to do a better job of cleaning this up immediately and not waiting until halftime because Sean McVay said he didn't realize until halftime that they weren't going to be able to receive to start the second half. Sean McVay said that his understanding was the Cowboys won the toss, elected to kick, and then the Rams would get to elect to start the second half. And he says he didn't find out till halftime was almost over that that wasn't the case. So clearly it wasn't communicated well by referee Walt Anderson and VP of officiating Al Riveron. Uh, I do think they got it right, but I think the NFL needs to make sure that whatever the call is, at the start of the game, both teams know that because sometimes coaches say things like, well, we decided to to not be quite as aggressive at the end of the second half because we knew we were getting the ball first in the second or not, not be as aggressive at the end of the first half. We knew we were getting the ball to start the second half. So that's why we, we called that play where we did. Coaches know whether they're getting the ball or not and call plays accordingly in the first half. So I didn't think that was handled right. I thought it was a very interesting case, though. I can't really remember another example of this happening where we're sitting there during the first half of a game saying, did I hear that right? Did they decide to kick when they won the toss? Uh, that was an unusual thing that happened. Yeah, and it, it, it's so weird because on one hand, Walt Anderson decided to be a stickler, for lack of a better term, to exactly what he was hearing, but he didn't hear what he needed to hear. Oh, you said kick. No, you, you, no, you know, it's like, it's like kids on a playground. No, you said kick. You, you did. No, you, you, you didn't say defer. You said kick. Like, like he, 
he's locking on to the most illogical decision the Cowboys would make. There's no weather component at play. I remember a playoff game between the Giants and the Vikings 16 years ago when the Giants, or 26 years ago, my God, when the Giants chose to kick because they wanted the win. This was back in the, the days before you could even have the option to defer. But in today's NFL, you hear defer, you hear kick, you hear kick. You're not going to assume you hear kick that they actually choose to choose to potentially kick off to start both halves. It's just ludicrous that Anderson locked onto that and he was wrong and it made no sense. And it seemed like he was just being an asshole, pardon me, for no reason. That's what was so weird about it. And you're right. That dark cloud was hovering over the Cowboys most of the first half. What's going to happen? How do you plan the end of the first half knowing the second half you're going to have to kick off because the Rams get the option because you exercised your option instead of deferring it. But then when you hear the actual audio, you can hear Dak Prescott saying defer. And I think the coaching point that comes out of all that, you know, the one thing that Geno Smith has done this year for the Seahawks, he has served as the guy who goes out for the coin toss when they go to overtime. That's it. One guy. And I think that these teams should either only send one captain out at the start of the game so there's no chance for any misunderstanding or make it clear, yeah, the the rest of you get to go out as well, but only one person speaks. And if anyone else says a word, you're going to have to answer to me. But you don't want to take that chance that something screwy is going to happen. So uh, if I'm, you know, because you know, I know the coaches pay attention to other stuff that happens around the league. And if it's me, look, this is ceremonial. It's pointless. I'm just sending one guy. And that guy has clear instructions as to what he's supposed to do because I'm not running the risk of stepping into this, this stupid pothole that the Cowboys found themselves in. Yeah, and, you know, there are supposed to be four things you can say when you win the toss. Defer, receive, kick off, or we'll defend that end zone. Those those are supposed to be the four things you can say. What I hear most of the time, a lot of the time you don't hear the audio of the coin toss, but what I hear most of the time is the team that wins the toss says, we want the ball, which means we want to receive. But, you know, a referee, if he wanted to be, since you said it, an asshole, if he wanted to, he could be like, oh, you want the ball? Well, I'm giving you the ball to kick it off because that's what it means to want the ball. So, you know, obviously we all know what the player means when he says we want the ball. And we all knew what Dak Prescott meant when he flubbed it and kind of said defense, kick, defer to the second half. We all knew he meant defer to the second half. So I I think it ought to be you listen to what the player says. If there's any question at all about what he meant, just let the referee ask him to clarify. Are you deferring to the second half? Are you receiving? Are you kicking? Let let him clarify. And don't play gotcha with the, the guy. To, oh, you, you, you said kick. You said kick before you said defer. That means you're kicking. And, and let me tell you, if I'm Al Riveron or anybody else at the league office, I'm getting on the phone with Walt Anderson, and I'm asking, what, what, the, what the hell are you trying to prove here? Why, wh- what do you think they want? What do you think they meant? Why did you do this? This is, kind of, this is just stupid. And, uh, but, but still, as a coach, you have to account for the possibility that somebody else is going to do something stupid. And that leads to my call of the week, which was the decision in Oakland to blow the – 
clock dead when Derek Carr slid and continued out of bounds at a time where it would have significantly infringed upon the ability of the Jaguars to get the ball back and take the lead late and beat the Oakland Raiders. The slide should have kept the clock going because the moment the knee is down, that's when the play is over when anyone slides with the ball. But because Derek Carr slid out of bounds, he ended up out of bounds untouched, and they they said timeout. And how, how often do we see that aggressive cranking of the clock motion when a guy catches a pass and gets stopped very quickly with his forward progress and bumped out of bounds and they come in and they do this like ha ha you didn't get out of bounds you dumbass I mean we see that all the time and that body language tells me that the the officials basically saying oh you tried but it didn't work buddy they th- th- there's clearly a situation where the guy is down in bounds and the clock should keep going and they blew it dead and again a screw up by the officials and John Gruden went public with the notion that the league apologized that's something the league doesn't like and Gruden could get in trouble for that But the league should apologize for it. They blew it. And as it relates to the question of engineering into your own decision-making processes as a coach, the possibility that somebody's going to do something stupid, I think you got to tell a guy who's at the sideline, if you're going to give yourself up, don't slide. Don't, Don't end up out of bounds. Whatever you do to give yourself up, stay in bounds so there's no misunderstanding that you got out of bounds when you're in bounds. You can just hit the deck. You don't have to do much to give yourself up. You just have to fall down, right? Just fall down. That's one of the clock management tools that anyone who plays Madden knows. There's a button you hit. When you want to fall down, you just fall down and the clock keeps running. And that's what Carr should have done. Not that he was wrong to do what he did, but you got to account for somebody being a dumbass. And that's what the Raiders and Carr failed to do. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've seen a couple of people actually say that, oh, well, it was only a matter of a few seconds, but that completely misses the point. At that that point in the game, it's not about the number of seconds that run off. It's about the number of plays that are remaining that you need to run. And because the clock stopped before the two-minute warning instead of at the two-minute warning, that's one more play on offense the Raiders had to run And it ended up being very important because the Jaguars got the ball back with just enough time to march down the field and score the winning touchdown. And so it it was a a big mistake that just never should have happened. The, the, The implications at that moment in the game of getting a clock decision wrong are just huge, and the officials got it wrong. And, you know, this is one of those where... I am an advocate. I, I, look, I'm an advocate uh, for using the pipeline from 345 to Park uh, from 345 Park Avenue to the game site anytime, any place, anywhere. I think that that's critical to do what you have to do to fix mistakes, and it's basically de facto sky judge. And I remember earlier this year we were talking about what could be done to improve officiating during the season. Nothing officially, but unofficially, use that pipeline is de facto sky judge it would seem to me that that's the kind of thing that you know people aren't going to lose their minds over the clock running uh instead of the clock being dead there once our river on sees it and says oh no that that clock should still be running and it is critical to the outcome of the game and uh the raiders may have very well won their last game in oakland if that decision goes the other way yeah absolutely uh it, it was a a huge call, a huge blown call, and 
Derek Carr and John Gruden were extremely upset, and you really can't blame them. It, it was just a bad call that may well have changed the outcome of that game. Yeah, I'm looking at this here. Uh, they, yeah, they, 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 the Jaguars uh, still had a timeout that they were able to use later. Um, it, it was a, it was a second and nine. Ran out of bounds for 12 yards, got the first down, but 2.05 was left on the clock, so they had to run that extra play um, instead of running the clock all the way down to the two-minute warning. And that extra play, look, that does make the difference between having to uh, punt the ball versus uh, having being able to run the clock out. And my God, they threw a pass on third and 11 from the Jaguars' 32 uh, that uh, did not keep the clock moving. So it's kind of on the Raiders as well. They they compounded the mistake by not keeping the ball on the ground when they could have shaved some time off the clock. And it also would have helped if Daniel Carlson had made the field goal. He had two shots from the 50, from a 50-yarder and a 45-yarder. He missed both of them. If he makes either of those kicks, the game is essentially over then and there. But uh, although they still could have lost 20 to 19, uh, just, uh, just, uh, I, I'm stunned that the Raiders blew that game. Uh, that was, that would have been the bet your farm lock of the week for me, that there's no way the Raiders are losing to the Jaguars on the money line. And I thought there was no way they wouldn't cover because the Jaguars have been so bad. And the fact that the Jaguars hadn't won a game on the West coast since 2005 just makes it even worse. I saw the tweet from Tad Dickman who does PR for the Jaguars. It's like, my God, this is just the low key brag that is rubbing salt dead into the wounds of all those Raider fans that went there for what was supposed to be a party and ended up going uh, going home upset. All right, before we move on to a couple of questions, we won't do a lot because we've already gone over by over an hour. Um, and I, I want to mention this. To the extent that the Lions were hoping to get Matthew Stafford back for Week 17, possibly to spoil things for the Green Bay Packers, apparently he's going on injured reserve. So no Matthew Stafford. David Plow, David Blau, Mr. Plow will be the quarterback for the Lions for the rest of the season, apparently. I do need to remind you of this because it's the holiday season. Do not drink and drive. Ever. Not just during the holiday season, but ever. This is a message courtesy of our friends at NHTSA. They've extended the campaign. Apparently, they like the fact that I don't read off of the copy and I just speak to you directly from the mind and from the heart. This is a horrible trend that still continues in the United States. And I think during the holidays, there is a risk of forgetting the things that we ordinarily are very careful about nowadays, making sure we don't drink too much when we're out and about, making sure we have arrangements in place to get home, making sure we use the cell phone device that we have that allows us to punch a button and have an Uber pick us up on those nights when we've had too much to drink. Whether it's drinking, whether it's driving while under the influence of a substance that is now legal in more and more states that you can smoke or you can eat, don't drive after doing that either. There are still way too many people who die in alcohol and marijuana-related crashes every day. It shouldn't happen, and the worst time of year it could happen is during the holidays when people are trying to unwind, enjoy time with friends and family, and to have something like that occur that would just rip lives apart forever. Uh, whether you're the victim of your own drunk driving or you make someone else the victim, this is not the time of year. There's never a time of year to do it, but this is the worst time of year that you could do something like that. Be smart during the holidays. Always have that, 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 that idea in your head, and I think we've all kind of been there, where if we're out and we've got the keys and we've had one or two, we know we're getting close to that point where 
I'm just I'm not going to be in a position to drive. Make the arrangement before you cross that bridge into the world of I'm never drinking again, which is what you'll be saying the next morning. Don't have the reason you'll never be drinking again be because you got behind the wheel of your car when you shouldn't have. Just leave it to a good old-fashioned hangover. Let that be the reason you vow to never drink again. Brought to you by our friends at NHTSA. I use none of the copy they sent, but I believe everything. Uh, and I've fortunately, MDS, I don't know about you, and I don't want to dredge up any bad experiences. I've never had to deal with that. I've never had anyone close to me who's been involved in an accident while under the influence. I've never had anyone close to me or any friend who's been on the wrong side of someone else who's been in that. And thank God for that. But I think it is the kind of thing that destroys lives every day in this country. And it is all avoidable. No doubt about it. And uh, it, it it's really inexcusable to drink and drive. It always kind of boggles my mind when I hear uh, in 2019, soon to be 2020, that anyone still drinks and drives anymore. It is it is a stupid thing to do. It is an easily avoidable thing to do. And uh, just no one should ever do it at this point. All right, we're moving on to the best questions that we saw. We're not going to take a lot of them today because, number one, we only want the best. And number two, we've already gone well over the 60 minutes. I try to keep this within Dean Osborne 42 two-minute drill to march 80 yards and win the Super Bowl who would you rather have leading your offense Drew Brees or Tom Brady and of course this is inspired by the ongoing debate today who would you rather have next year when they both become free agents unless they sign new contracts Drew Brees or Tom Brady who would you want in that situation MDS right now I would want Brees obviously Brady has been in that situation more times than Brees there's no quarterback in NFL history who's won more big games than Tom Brady. But if you ask me about this year, this upcoming Super Bowl, I would trust Drew Brees more than I would trust trust Tom Brady. See, I'm surprised you're going that way. With me, even though I'd rather have Drew Brees as my week-in and week-out quarterback, I want Tom Brady in that spot because I know he's not going to freak out. Drew Brees has never been in that spot. The dagger came for the Saints when they won the Super Bowl in early 2010 when the Colts were driving down the field to tie the game up at 24 and it was Tracy Porter who jumped the route Reggie Wayne didn't cross his face and Peyton Manning I think telegraphed a little too much what was happening and Tracy Porter said after the game that it was a product of great film study that means there were clues there that Peyton Manning and the Colts allowed to be there but That wasn't Drew Brees winning the game. That was Tracy Porter making one of the great defensive plays in Super Bowl history. Brees has never done it. Brady has over and over and over again to the point where I think he thrives on those moments. So I want Brady in that spot. And I think back to the first Super Bowl that the Patriots won. Remember, the Rams tied it up late. And the Patriots got it back with not a whole lot of time left. And John Madden advocated aggressively for just taking it to overtime. He changed his mind as Tom Brady led the Patriots down the field for what would be Adam Vinatieri's game-winning field goal. But that was the moment that Tom Brady, I think, acquired that that skill that you put him in that spot and he's going to get it done. And we've seen him do it over and over again. So I want Tom Brady in that moment without question. All right, let's see what else we have here. Skull Vikings 407. Will a lack of playoff experience hurt the 49ers in the postseason as a team? They're the only organization without recent playoff experience this year. Do you think the fact, and I look primarily at Jimmy Garoppolo, 
the fact that he has no playoff experience as a player. He's been around a team that's climbed the mountain, but he's never been the guy on the field. Does that make it harder for the 49ers when you consider Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, some of their key competitors in the NFC all have guys who know what it's like to get to a Super Bowl and win it? Yeah, Jimmy Garoppolo has been on the roster in a playoff game, in uniform on a playoff game, standing on the sideline. He has not uh, been the the man in the arena. He's been the man on the sideline. But I actually don't really think it hurts the 49ers all that much. I, I think that this 49ers team is capable of beating anyone in January. I would not say that the lack of playoff experience is going to be the reason. To me, I really think with the 49ers, it's going to come down to I have a lot of faith in them if they earn home field advantage and they're playing at home. I have a lot less faith in them if they lose in Week 17 and they have to win three times on the road. But it's not about playoff experience to me. It's just about how much easier the road to the Super Bowl is if you're one of those two teams with a bye week compared to if you're a wild card team. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and I worry about Garoppolo. I've worried about him all year long, although I think he acquitted himself well in that game against New Orleans that felt like a playoff game, and the game in Baltimore that felt like a playoff game. I think those intense games in Week 17 is going to feel like a playoff game, and how Garoppolo plays then could be a difference maker. But remember, he was not great, especially in overtime in that game against the Seahawks that went all the way down to the wire in that extra session He's going to need to deliver at some point. And it can't just be Kyle Shanahan drew up a good play. It's got to be Jimmy Garoppolo makes a big throw in a clutch moment. All right, a couple more before we go. Let's focus on Ohio and the hot seat for the last two questions this week. And let's begin with Dr. J144. Has Bengals coach Zach Taylor earned a second year? He's been worse than Steve Wilkes and some of these other coaches who didn't get more than one year. MDS, do you think Zach Taylor could be, should be, would be one and done? I wouldn't necessarily say he's earned a second year, but I think he'll get a second year uh, simply because I don't believe Mike Brown wants to make another coaching change this soon. I, I think Zach Taylor will get a second year because Bengals ownership, the Bengals as an organization, don't want to make a sudden change. Saying he's earned it might be an overstatement, though. I don't I don't know that you could say... He's earned much of anything. I wouldn't say he's being treated unfairly if he were one and done. But I do think that this was not a team that was going to be very good this year. I think they were at the low end of the not very good expectations for this Bengals team. But I think we all expected them to be the worst team in the AFC North. I think even if A.J. Green had been healthy, they would have been the worst team in the AFC North. Not having A.J. Green was a big difference. But I definitely think he's one of the coaches who has to show progress in year two if he'll get a year three. I agree with you completely. Now, generally speaking, Mike Brown, the owner of the Bengals, doesn't like to pay people to not work. And one of the reasons that Marvin Lewis was let go after the 2018 season is it turned out the extension he had signed before the year wasn't a true two-year contract it was an option for 2019, so the Bengals didn't owe him anything. They would owe Taylor money. They will not fire Zach Taylor 
when there is money owed because they don't want to pay him to not work. But the prospect of one and done, you know, when it happens, we're stunned. Oh, you don't fire a guy after one year. Well, Steve Wilkes was mentioned in the question. Consider this. Let's do a quick trip down memory lane. One year and out coaches of recent vintage. Chip Kelly, Jim Tom Sula, Rob Chudzinski, Mike Malarkey, one and done with Jacksonville in 2012. Hugh Jackson, one and done with the Raiders in 2011. Jim Mora, the younger, 2009, one and done with Seattle. Cam Cameron with the Dolphins in 2007. Before that, Art Shell, one-year stint with the Raiders when he came back in 06. Marty Schottenheimer, one year in 2001. Ray Rhodes, one year with the Packers in 1999. Joe Bugle, one year with the Raiders in 97. Pete Carroll, one year with the Jets in 94. And the, let, me, let me just finish since I'm almost there. Richie Pettibone with Washington, 1993, one year. Rod Rust, Patriots, one year, 1990. And the great Les Steckel, who had one year with the Vikings all the way back in 1984. So it does happen. It's just not not going to happen to Zach Taylor, but it could happen to Freddie Kitchens. And I thought the Sunday splash report from over the weekend, and this leads to the last question for this PFTPM podcast, and it's this, tacos and gin, who should the Browns hire if they get rid of Freddie? I thought the Sunday splash report for me and Rappaport, it felt like something that was put out there to address Kitchens' concerns that he's going to be fired. And that was the strongest statement that the Browns would be willing to put out there, that We wanted to come back. We wanted to be successful. And that barring a horrific collapse, the plan is to bring him back. That's the best they could do in response to Freddie Kitchens being nervous about reports regarding his status. I think he's out. And I'd go straight for Ron Rivera if I'm making a coaching change in Cleveland. Without question, I want Rivera there to try to turn this team around. MDS, what do you think the Browns should do if they move on from Freddie? I like Rivera as well. And the reason is... I think the Browns are a team that needs a calm hand to guide them, not a big splashy name, not an Urban Meyer that might be a home run, but also might be a strikeout. You just don't know because he's never coached at the NFL level. Not, I don't think that's the direction the Browns should go in. I think someone like a Ron Rivera, who you, reasonable people can disagree about how good a coach he is, But he never looked like an incompetent coach. He never looked like he just didn't know what he was doing. And if you hire somebody from the college level, that's a risk that he won't look like. He'll look like he doesn't know what he's doing. Also, if you hire, say, an offensive coordinator who's never been a head coach before, that's a risk that he doesn't know what he's doing. Ron Rivera, say what you will about him. You're never going to look at a Ron Rivera coach team and say, This guy just has no clue how to coach a football team. Uh, So I think that's the kind of coach the Browns need because there have just been too many times over the the two decades since this version of the Cleveland Browns came back to the NFL that we've said they don't look like they look like they don't know what they're doing. Uh, And they, they need somebody like that. I think Ron Rivera is the right type of coach for this organization. Two-time coach of the year, took a team to the Super Bowl and was favored to win it, and but for a great defensive performance by the Denver Broncos, probably would have won that game. I, I like Ron Rivera as a coach, and I think he'd be exactly what Cleveland needs. But, you know, it seems like they have too many disagreements internally between GM John Dorsey and Chief Strategy Officer or whatever his title is, Paul DePodesta. they got to get those guys on the same page and make sure that they're moving in the right direction. And 
the first challenge is, what do we do with Freddie Kitchens? Do we give him another year or do we move on? And I think the right call, sorry, Freddie, I think we've seen enough. I've seen enough. They tried it. It didn't work. The sooner you admit that it didn't work and move on to someone else, the better off the team's going to be. All right, we're going to move on. Back to work we go at profootballtalk.com. We'll have the, we got to figure out next week, the Week 16 Awards, because next Tuesday's Christmas Eve, and MDS, as much as I enjoy doing this, I don't know that I want to do this next Christmas Eve, and I don't think there's going to, next week on Christmas Eve, I don't think there's going to be anybody around to tape it anyway. So we'll figure out when we hand out the Week 16 Awards. But until next time, whenever next time may be, thanks for some of your time. We do have the Mega Picks podcast later this week with Chris Sims. We'll do that. We'll have a, uh, we won't have a Friday edition of PFTPM this week. So you're just going to have to make do with Tuesday and Thursday. Sorry, that's just the way it is. We'll see you all week long around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Thanks for some of your time. We'll talk soon. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.